some jobs, like who you can have relationships with is just like extremely dictated. And even the conversation, like if you and I were working in a call center and you're sitting next to me, like I'm not supposed to talk to you most likely. When I get on a phone call with a customer, like I've got a script that I'm probably supposed to follow. I'm not having an actual connection. Welcome to Create New Features, a show about thought-provoking ideas and practices you can use to create and shape your future in life and in business. Join Aviv Shahar, author and innovation strategy consultant, as he shares his proven strategies that have helped clients create breakthrough results. Aviv has guided executives at Fortune 100 companies, and now he wants to help you. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders and entrepreneurs and explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Aaron Hurst. Aaron is the CEO and co-founder of Imperative, a peer coaching platform that unlocks the power of peers to support and help each other become increasingly more effective and fulfilled. Aaron is an expert on the science of purpose at work and the author of The Purpose Economy, how your desire for impact, personal growth, and community is changing the world. As the founder of the Taproot Foundation, he catalyzed the $15 billion pro bono service market. We are here to talk about his insights about learning and thriving at work through meaningful conversations and about how the world of work is changing and is about to change in the coming decade. Aaron, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Great to be with you. Excited for the conversation. What have I missed in uh, your introduction there? So many different things and yet nothing. But uh, I think the the most important one is probably uh, my most important job, which is as a parent of two uh, incredible teenage kids here in Seattle, which I think is the cliche, but the most important job and the most important form of leadership. That's awesome. So let me dive right in and ask you first, with all the things that you do at work and you get to get involved in, what do you enjoy the most and why? I love that question. I was actually just doing a peer coaching conversation on this topic. So it's uh, very fresh for me, but there's sort of two things that I love doing. One is invention. So when there's a, a challenge or an opportunity, trying to come up with a solution to that, it's problem solving sort of mashed up with design, I would say as a activity. And then the second one is evangelism. You know, once you've got something you've invented, like you want everyone in the world to know about it because you're so excited about its potential. So those are the two things that I really get, you know, energized by, which is, you know, a good fit as an entrepreneur, because that's a lot of what you're doing. When did you recognize that you were by nature, by temperament an evangelizer? What, where would you trace that, that to? I think it came up most when I uh, was starting the Taproot Foundation. And uh, Taproot Foundation was all about helping nonprofits by getting business professionals to donate their marketing, tech, HR skills. So in starting that, when I was recruiting people at companies, going and speaking at business schools, speaking at trade associations, trying to inspire people to the their noble self to do pro bono work, I just found how much I loved telling that story and inspiring them and getting them to see something that they hadn't seen before. 
and having that aha breakthrough moment of realizing um, they have so much more potential in the world. And I think that was just really addictive for me to do that. So that's probably the first professional time that I enjoyed, you know, doing that. I think my first exposure to it as like a form of public speaking, which was a variation on that was in high school doing model United Nations and just having to take on the point of view of another country and their policy and having to be give a compelling argument for that policy. I just, I got so much energy out of doing that. Just thought that was so fun. So I think that was my earliest exposure, like as a child. So we're going to flow here in this conversation up and down the, the timeline. We're not going to do a, a linear thing or chronological thing, which is great. You mentioned the, the Taproot Foundation. Yep. What was the idea and how it appeared with you in the first place that catalyzed and inspired you to create that approach? Yeah. So the real sort of origin of it was I graduated from college and moved to Chicago and started working in inner city education with different nonprofits that were supporting teachers largely in the, in the classroom. And after not too long, I got really frustrated because I saw that these nonprofits having like the work they were doing is the most important work. The need was just so acute, but the ability to actually execute at any kind of scale to get there just didn't, wasn't happening. There wasn't that ability. And I, you know, I looked around you know, on Wacker Drive, looking at all these big buildings and you're like, how are these companies able to scale something to go from a incredible small impact to a, a massive impact? And became really curious about that and realized I either wanted to go to business school or I wanted to go work in business and understand more about how businesses scale. And one of them cost money and one of them paid money. So I went with the, uh, let's go work inside an organization and you know, thinking about like, where's the best place to do that? I had family in Palo Alto, so moved to the Bay Area and started, you know, got two different gigs, one for, you know, two, both of them for about two and a half years as a, you know, first 10 employees at two venture-backed startups in the Bay Area and sort of just saw that whole, that whole scaling process. That's really sort of the, at its purest form, like that's, you know, quick scaling. And, you know, and reflecting back on it, it was really clear to me that money matters, but it also that the, the skills that startups bring in are skills that generally nonprofits don't have. So nonprofits you know, don't usually have a CTO or a CMO or any of these other roles early on, whereas startups were hiring them in advance of the need so that they were able to basically pave the runway before they sort of grew up. So you know, sort of at the end of that journey, I said, you know what, I didn't come here to work in startups. I came here to actually help nonprofits with this need. So I started going on talking to nonprofits about, you know, what is it that you need? How can I help you? Because I know there's the skill gap. And the basic answer was, I have so many different needs and I need all this help with marketing and tech and HR and finance and all these things. And I was like, I can't do all that for you. And that's sort of where I had that aha moment, that invention moment of realizing that if I could create a scalable consulting firm that could do all this pro bono work for all the nonprofits, but using pro bono labor instead of paid labor could actually scale an organization that could make a meaningful contribution to the nonprofit sector. And that was sort of that moment of realization where Taproot was really born out of that, that insight. So for me, the exemplary, the special element in the story is you are in those startup opportunities and gigs, but you are staying tethered to your initial inspiration. You're not losing that sense of what brought you there in the first place, because often you'd get a young person into these environments and the excitement and the possibility and, and money takes over. What was it that enabled you to stay tethered to that sense of purpose and mission? I, don't know. I mean, to be like 
honest about it. I don't know that every single day that was the case. Like, I think a lot of times you're just you're solving the problem. You're working with your team. You're trying to like to get there. And both of the for-profit startups had a social oriented mission tied to them as well. One was a precursor to blogging and the idea of like having everyone be able to create content and to, to be authors, which to me was an inspiring mission. And another one was about you know empowering people to take the first steps of homeownership. So I did find some sort of social value in those organizations. But to me, it was like having family that's always been focused on social impact and was really helpful. Like it just sort of kept on bringing it back to you know family values to you know what I cared about. So I feel very grateful that I had that that support system that kept me sort of honest to my values. Um, so, so yeah. I'm going to circle back to that and just your formation as an entrepreneur, as a, as a CEO. But let me now lead and, and ask about Imperative and what was the insight that catalyzed the idea of Imperative for you? Yeah. So Imperative has been a journey. So there's sort of multiple answers to that question. So the initial piece was, you know, 10 years into Taproot, what I saw was that people were doing pro bono work to make their work meaningful because they didn't get meaning out of their work. Mm. And I sort of had this aha moment that I was in the vitamin business instead of healthy food business. And I was like, you know what? I don't really want to continue to just help people have an excuse to eat McDonald's and then have their vitamins. I want them to actually like eat the healthy meal. And I want to focus on how do I help support that? How do we make all work feel like pro bono work was sort of my design challenge at the time. So, you know, left, wrote the purpose economy as a way for me of exploring, like, what is it going to take to make that possible? Like reviewing the research, looking at the business value of all work becoming meaningful, because it's not just for the social impact. It was like, it had to be a business imperative. And then we started looking at, you know, what is the technology necessary to make this possible? Because the current tech stack in workplace is designed for work to be efficient and about pushing information around. It is not fundamentally built for human beings. And it tends to be written by people who are not very socially oriented and are just sort of looking at work very much like a, a set of human resources to be optimized. And basically started on this journey of doing research with my alma mater at Michigan, NYU, LinkedIn, PwC, different partners trying to figure out what were positive deviants doing? What were people doing that was different than everybody else that enabled them to be fulfilled? What were these practices that they did? And with a thought of like, we can take that then and we can amplify that. And there are two practices that really emerged. One was people who are fulfilled at work, and this is going to shock you, they tend to know what fulfills them. So it's sort of not surprising once you hear it, but the reality is our Generally, like K-12 and higher ed doesn't teach us the answer to that question. A lot of the assessments out there, they teach you what your strengths are. They teach you what your personality is. They don't really teach you like what fulfills you. And I realized that I had insights and could do the research to actually determine the psychological drivers of purpose so that we could build a tool that would, within 10 minutes, enable every employee to know what their purpose is. So we built that first, and that was very successful, you know, rolling that out, you know, around the world. And then the second insight was that that wasn't enough. People had to have a support system to constantly bring them back to your point, bring them back to their purpose. So they didn't just continue sort of on their, you know, conveyor belt that they're on, but they actually took that step back. And we realized that they were not doing it with coaches. They weren't doing it with managers. They weren't doing it with HR. It was actually, they were doing it with their peers. The people who were fulfilled, like built peer networks that they regularly did job crafting with. They reflected on their emotions, they reflected on what was going on at work, and they came up with ideas for how they were going to show up differently. And we realized that that was really the, the key ingredient to the future of work, was supporting 
peer and coaching networks inside businesses where people are supporting each other to basically craft their job on a continuous basis to be fulfilled. So that's the long answer to your question. Well, there is so much there for me to unpack because uh, let's just stay with with the purpose and inquiry and, and then come back to, to the peer coaching. As somebody that used to take people on a three and four days retreat in some of the largest, most admired companies in the world for purpose discovery and, and to develop their, 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 their passionate purpose and, and their core values and then build a, and design a design for their life as to how to realize that. I'm, I'm intrigued that you say that you could help people in 10 minutes discover the purpose. So what are the, some of the core principles that, that that insight and the tool was developed on? Yeah. So I mean, if you think about it, if you, if you went and looked at all the people you worked with, right, I mean, all the purpose statements that they articulated, if you look at all those and you started to look at how are they, you know, they're all different in their language, their poetry. But if you look at like, what are the actual differences that are being articulated, you start to see that there's really three elements that tend to emerge in every purpose that's articulated well. And, you know, we've tested this in a lot of different ways. One is really, we saw there was a psychological difference in the elevation that people wanted to make an impact. Some people are totally fulfilled helping a person or individuals. For others, they need to feel like their impact is at a societal level. And there's sort of a continuum there. And that has a huge impact on, you know, what would come out of one of your workshops. The second one is that most people's purpose at some level ties back to how their work makes the world more fair and more just. And there you see, and this is like very well researched, there's a continuum of how people are pre-wired around their point of view on what does fairness mean? I mean, actually the definition of what's fair is at the heart of someone's purpose. That's really what they're trying to do is make the world fair. And this ties back to very sort of traditional ideas around, you know, two different polar ends. One is this idea that fairness has to do with basically free markets and enabling that's what's fair. And the other side, fairness has to do with helping other people um, and making sure no one's left behind and there's continuum, but that has a huge impact on then the definition. And then the final, which is the most sort of, I think understood is much more around what is the primary way you solve problems? Because typically in a purpose statement, there's an articulation of what is your role in that? And we found those tend to fall into four buckets as well. I won't go into all that detail, but when you combine those things, you could basically assemble 24 different purpose statements that we saw, you know, even with people like yourself who'd done this work forever, they would do it and be like, it's not the exact same words, but you completely got the sentiment behind it. And what's cool about that is that because it's data-driven, you can start to do predictive analytics to say, if your purpose is X, we know in this situation, you're likely going to want to do Y, which is very different than if you just do it through what I call like a more poetic coaching environment. And you can start to look at combinations. So if you have these people with all these different purpose types, how are they going to start to show up differently? How do you need to structure goals differently? So it enables a, a type of scale that wasn't possible before. So let me just explore a number of um, facets and tell me if, if those are in, in any way, shape, or form integrated into this. Where is the place and the sense of meaning for you in the inquiry of purpose? Is, is it one and the same or, or not? Or how do you place the sense of meaning? Yeah, I mean, we talked about a couple of different terms, like purpose, there's meaning, there's fulfillment, right? So when we're, when we're doing work that's aligned with our purpose, it is meaningful. That's sort of how we, we think of it, sort of like the meaning comes out as an output from doing the work that's purposeful. It has meaning. And actually, we found that unless you're aware of what fulfills you, no matter what you do, your work's generally not fulfilling because the actual act of meaning 
is that you have to give meaning to something. Nothing is inherently meaningful. It's only in the process of reflection that you create meaning for something. So when you're able to tie the awareness about your purpose to the work you're doing, then you sort of say, this is meaningful. And then fulfillment we found is really the, the emotional state that you have when your work is meaningful, you feel fulfilled. And that's been a big part of our advocacy work is helping to change the narrative and corporations from employee engagement, which is a management perspective to employee fulfillment, which is what employees want. It's just sort of trying to create that shift. Where do you place in this cosmology of ideas the significance of happiness, of joy? Happiness and joy, I think, are, are interesting. So the way I like to think about fulfilling work is it's a lot like parenting. And it's not all joy. There are moments of joy, but those moments of joy are you know, moments of struggle, frustration, going through a journey together. I think it's really important that we don't see life as just continuous act of happiness and joy. Like that's not the right goal. Meaning often does not come from joy or happiness. So I try to generally, I think it's a very American concept, try to push people a little bit away from that as the goal and have them connect to the moments when they felt fulfilled, which could have come after something that was very difficult and painful. Um, right. Those are you know, incredibly valuable as well. Positive psychology offers three different kind of happiness, yep. dimensions of happiness. It, it is the giggly happiness of the moment. It is that sense of meaning that you uh, speak to in the sense of when you are fulfilled at work. And, and it is that third element, which is when you lose the sense of time and you are in some kind of a flow state. So where do you place the desire to be in that creative zone to explore and, and enter flow states? Do you believe that they show up when you are in the zone of fulfillment or how do you place that? Well, I think when you're working in alignment with your purpose and you're, you're, it's a, that is your natural flow. So by definition, like you're much more likely to be in that, that state of flow as you define it. The other thing is that the, the definition I often gave that people found helpful was of those two different, like broadly the two different kinds of happiness. I get that there's this, the three, but that the first one is sh- like carbohydrates and sugar. Yep. And the second one is protein. And they both generate energy, but it's a very different type of energy and very different nutritional value. And that there's you know value to both, but you wouldn't want a diet of all sugar and carbs. Right, right. right. And a different... Um collateral health or, or damage as a, as a result of both. Let yep. me explore two more elements in this. One is the spiritual and the other is the developmental. Do you see, did you um, overlay your research with some developmental theory and, and developmental stages and do they impact and change in any way that sense of fulfillment of, at, at work? There's sort of two different pieces. So we looked at it in terms of like what someone's purpose is. We found that that's pretty stable. It's more a question of people's self-awareness. So typically when someone changes their articulated purpose, it's not because they've changed. They've just become more self-aware about who they are. So I think of it more as like peeling back the onion and that they you know, are fundamentally shifting. What we did see a bigger difference is what we framed as a term called purpose mindset. And what we saw was that there's actually a mindset tied to people who tend to be fulfilled, where they, the role that they see work playing in their life is different than other people. Some people see their work as being about, you know, just a financial transaction. Some people it's about ego and there's others who see it as being about, you know, creating value and being fulfilled. 
And those people are much more likely to be fulfilled. No surprise there. And we did see that you saw more of a correlation there over time in terms of people shifting on that. And generally, as you got you know older, people were more likely to be purpose-oriented or purpose-driven. And women were significantly more likely than men to be purpose-driven. So, and the, like the most purpose-driven category is basically women over 50. That's where you had like the, the sort of pinnacle of that, which actually is like one of the most discriminated against segments of the workforce. So it's interesting in this context, like in many ways, the most valuable employees are the ones that are least valued. So implicit in this insight is that the purpose mindset is something that a person can cultivate, can develop, and can evolve over time. Yes, and So I think that's right. We did some early research, which wasn't definitive, but it pointed to signs that there were actually like specific psychological problems that tended to cause the first two states. So generally, we saw people who were in the money mindset, like work is a necessary evil, generally had fundamental issues that they didn't trust the world. Then those tend to tie back to very early childhood, you know, based on secondary research on that. And therefore, like that's, they're not going to give the power to their work to be more than that because they don't trust the world. And then the people who see work as largely about career and performance and like proving yourself tended to have fundamental issues with identity and self, self-worth where they felt like they needed that to show up at their high school reunion and feel like they were successful because they didn't have enough identity for themselves without that work being that identity for them. So they can develop, but they have to work through, my hypothesis is you have to work through those psychological changes. You can't just say, this is the better state to be in. You're like, yep, great. I'll do that. It's actually about addressing those underlying psychological issues that create that that change. Well, actually, the way you define these three mindsets, they correlate very nicely with different developmental states. So and naturally supportive for that. The last dimension to explore yeah. is the spiritual. I don't mean in that sense the, the religious dimension, even though that, that is by itself an interesting inquiry too. So let's, let me ask you both about the religious and spiritual in the way different people define these terms. Have you found any correlation in any way in the way you, you were building the map of meaning of purpose at work? Not really, to be honest with you. Like I think that I think a lot of the early work and purpose is done through different faiths. And I think that's often where people look to do this type of work. Like a lot of the reason people go to a synagogue or a church or what have you is for that pure support and reminder of like what matters. So I think I thought of it more in the sense of like um, what we were doing is creating a secular alternative to that, where people could do that exploration and they would have, you know, have the support of a community. Um, to keep bringing them back to what matters and that intentionality. But from a psychological standpoint, like looking at, you know, are people more likely to be spiritual if they are, if they're, you know, purpose-driven, purpose-oriented? We did some early looks at that and there was, you know, there was correlation there. I think that's, you know, not surprising, but not any deeper than that. So let's now look at this idea of peer coaching and the distinction you made earlier. What was, how did you discover that and how do you differentiate actually between peer coaching? Is it structured? Is it not and not very structured? And how do you make those distinctions between the mentoring, the other kind of coaching modalities to the one you focus on yeah. in catalyzing peer coaching? I mean, we took a lot from different practices, from therapists to coaches to mentoring, and sort of looked at all those, but you know, really thought about it. Like, let's look at the behavioral science, like at its core and not be too influenced by those existing models. Let's actually look at the science behind it. 
And there are a bunch of key differences. And one of the things I would start with is, you know, what we've built with our platform is really a continuous process. Our belief is not that you need a coach for a month and then you're done. Our belief is that coaching should be a continuous process throughout your career from, you know, from school all the way through to retirement and beyond. And it's a process that is going to be critical, especially going forward in the workplace, because with so much change constantly happening in the world, with so much stress going on in the world, people need that continuous support mechanism for them. So it's a continuous motion versus like a solve for or a skill building model. So that's sort of one. Second piece is that we design the whole process. It's not about advice giving, which is what mentoring tends to be. This whole process is about two people coming together to reflect on what's going on, talk about sort of the dynamic of that and tie it to their own reflection about what matters to them and to identify a change they're going to make every two weeks to enable their success. And the goal is to help people solve their own problems, not solve it for them. Whereas I think most corporate cultures and most of our culture in general is a problem solving mindset. And this is much more like help people actually empower them to solve their own challenge. Third thing is it's, it is peer. So by being peer, it changes the power dynamic, which mentoring does, you've got power dynamic issue. So you're actually able to share stories at the same level about what you're doing, that actually those stories are of high value to each other. So and, it's not- it, This is a, a reciprocity- That's right. Based conversation. That's right. Well, each side is helping the other side. Yep, exactly. And continuously. And a lot of it's just by hearing someone else's journey and story, it builds this empathy, it creates ideas- there's tremendous value in that. So that would be sort of the next thing I would, would share. And then it's got benefits that you wouldn't see in those other modalities. So one is we found that after doing peer coaching on our platform for one quarter, people report having a meaningful relationship they've built with someone who's typically a stranger to them inside their company. So you're starting to build networks and break down silos inside an organization through this which is incredibly important. You're starting to build inclusion. So building a relationship with a coach doesn't really do much for you from an inclusion or relationship standpoint. But when you're suddenly having a partner who's different than you are in some dimension and you're humanizing them and creating that sense of belonging, um, you're seeing a significant ripple effect. And you're also seeing on a psychological level, like one of the most important things to mental health and to being open to change is meaningful conversation and pure connection, like that, that kind of intimate connection. So it's actually in of itself, like a mental health booster for folks. And we see that coming out of conversations as people's energy gets elevated, their optimism gets elevated. And that's because of the oxytocin release tied to that kind of conversation. So there's a lot of like pretty fundamental difference. We really see this as less like a program or a sort of part of a journey and more of just a continuous part of the flow of the future of work. What kind of scaffoldings and uh, support and, and tools do you provide for those one-on-one -on -one interactions? Yeah, so a lot is the answer. So it starts off with, we do the purpose profile for everyone, which is then used for matching. So we do the matching of them. They then go into a video interface. We're posing uh, specific dynamically generated questions that they each ask each other. Each of those has a follow-up question. So it's helping them dig deeper. And then it's also surfacing insights from their purpose profile. So we know all these things about someone based on that. So when they're answering questions, we can like pop up and be like, you know, struggling with this question, here are some ways that you may think about it. And we're finding that's been really critical to help people dig deeper and to get them to true insights about themselves. And then at the end of each conversation, they're making a pledge of a commitment they're going to make to their colleague of something they're going to do. So we're able to provide the scaffolding of 
making sure those are well articulated and thoughtful. And then two weeks later when they reconnect, checking in so we can actually you know, look at the, the accountability and the impact of the actions that they're doing. So it's pretty robustly scaffolded. They're also taking notes for each other as they go. So you have a whole history of notes from your coaching partner from all your sessions that you can refer back to. So you have that, that resource. And these work virtually or in person or both? Virtual. So our assumption is that, you know, whether people are working from home or not, like you're trying to build bridges between offices, between different departments, et cetera. So virtual is a much more effective way to do that. And it's interesting. We've actually found in a lot of ways, it's been more successful than in person. Higher level of intimacy. High level of intimacy. Higher level of intimacy and safety yep, in the virtual. That's exactly yep. right. And there's less of like worrying about what you look like, what you smell like, what, how you're showing up. I guess it's, it's more comfort we're finding for a lot of people in that environment. Is there a time component? These are 45 minutes, these are an hour, yeah. these are 30 minutes. They're, they're each about an hour. You found that's about how long it takes to check in on your past goal, do the sort of reflection, and then come up with a new outcome. So it's about an hour every two weeks, and then you switch partners every quarter. So over the course of a year, you have 20 conversations, but with four different partners. So it gets you, it starts to build your network inside the business or inside the organization. So it's, it's always inside the same company? are, well, so let me ask you now, so what is the business model? How do you make money in a yep. business like this? Yeah. So we're a venture-backed tech startup. So we are a SaaS business model. So, you know, a company like Hasbro license imperative, we have an enterprise license with Hasbro, for example, for all their employees to be on the platform. And the size of that contract is based on how many employees they have as a company. So, you know, we're about nine months into the deployment of this to sort of go to market. And we've got, you know, clients. So you just went into market mid-pandemic. It's like the ideal perfect thing. Yeah. For the no. Yeah, we started working on it in 2019, but it was really, you know, we had to raise venture capital to like really go beyond prototype into the true build and then had alpha and beta clients. And then in Q4 of 2020, like really went to market and have just seen incredible response. I mean, everyone from Microsoft, Target, Zillow, you know, Boston Scientific, some really large brands are embracing this and exploring it as part of how they're thinking about the new operating system for work. Have you played, have you inquired into the modality of groups of threes or groups of four? This is just in my, since I'm in the business of designing transformational experiences, I've developed a unique set of insights about what happens in a one-on-one -on -one situation with a mirroring neurons, but what then happens with threes, with fours, with fives? Have you explored any of that on the platform? We did in prototyping. What we found was it's partially logistical, which is if you want people to schedule these sessions, every person you add is exponentially harder to find the time and they're much more likely to fall apart and start to like degrade. So with two people, like scheduling is one of the biggest challenges for this type of work. So just minimizing that. I think also just from that intimacy perspective of trying to really build a network in a sense of psychological safety, the dynamic between two people is very different than three. The safety is very different than with three, for example. There's lots of benefits to three, four, five as well, but just from the pure like coaching value of creating safety, of creating a deep connection between two people, we felt like it was the better modality. I do think three, four, those things work. I just think they're much harder to scale. And they're less predictable in terms of the dynamic within them. They need more uh, guided or structured scaffold to enable the, the flow to, to be predictable. So let's yeah, use it. There's the safety piece too of like, 
you start to wonder like, oh, do these two people, does this person like that person more than me in this session? And you start to get a little bit more into performative and anxiety that comes when you start getting beyond two people, which is really interesting as well. Do you, so let me actually ask there, what, what else do you do to uh, promote, to encourage the authenticity of the conversation? Is that part of those scaffoldings in the prompts and the questions? And that is partly helping people relax into a deeper sensing themselves and, yeah. and discover the, the safety? Yeah, I think a lot of it's because it's all based on the purpose science and that people are being fed these insights about them from a purpose perspective, that tends to put people in a mindset that's more abundance-oriented, more service-oriented, more best self-oriented. And when they hear someone else validate that, they feel seen. So it really accelerates that process pretty significantly. We also really, we use the research by Arthur Aronson on how to get strangers to fall in love, which is that reciprocity back and forth. You know, in his research, he you know, figured out basically how to accelerate, just get two people to feel that sense of being in love, which largely has to do with feeling seen. And how do you actually accelerate that, that trust in a, in a relationship? And we found that to be just like extremely effective. In what way have you been transformed in, in your relationship since you, with the people in, in your life, since you have launched Imperative and been on this journey? Well, I think from like a, as a user perspective, it's been hard for me because I don't really have peers in my company because I'm the CEO and it's like the one role that there definitely isn't more than one of, but I still, you know, use the platform a lot with the team, sort of not the main, it's not the use case that it's built for, but I, I do it anyway. And I think it really has humbled me. It's enabled me to get to know the people on the team in a way I never would have before. And just like, I'd always talk about, you know, valuing people and I thought I meant it, but I realized I didn't mean it as much as I thought I did. And that actually, as I got to know people's ambitions and hopes and fears and their interests and their, you know, the day-to-day things they're struggling with. And I started to do that. I just, I realized I started to see them as people at a much deeper level. And I think that's just been humbling for me and just something I feel it's like a depth that's added to my life that I really... I really value. I think the other thing is a humility around, I think working largely in the, you know, tech startups early and then, you know, in the nonprofit sector, I think I always thought creating a new business was not that hard a thing to do. I think I've been very humbled by, there are a million reasons a business can just fail. And the, no matter how talented the team is, no matter what's going on, you just sort of realize how fragile these organizations are. And that, how many variables and stars have to align for something to actually be successful. And I look at other entrepreneurs and people who've built successful businesses, I think with a lot more awe than I did before. So that's been really, that's been wonderful as well. Well, I'm tempted here to um, go to the beginning of the journey then and, and ask you both on, you mentioned that earlier in life, you were surrounded by people and in your upbringing, social impact was meaningful. So I'm interested, can you be a little more specific? What was it that, that especially inspired you earlier on in life? And then where in this story, this idea that you may lead, you may create a company, you may become an entrepreneur yourself, where do you get this idea, this thought that, yes, this is something you may be able to do? Yeah, so my immediate family and sort of core family sort of all socially oriented, I think, overall. So my dad was in higher education 
administration and like really focused on how do you optimize the culture of universities to help them be successful. My mother was a sort of more like art, arts oriented, was a belly dancer, an astrologist. She sort of was a, uh, did a lot of different things. She uh, worked in Mexico helping sort of create uh, cooperatives for women to be able to support themselves. You know, in the extended family, my grandfather was uh, the original sort of author of the strategy for the Peace Corps for President Kennedy, and it was a big part of the Marshall Plan and the rebuilding of Germany after the war. And then was the basically de facto founding CEO of the Aspen Institute and ran that for 25 years. So that was a big, you know, influence on me. And sort of the Aspen Institute's really about bringing people of different perspectives together to solve problems. So that that played a major role, I think, in my my upbringing, you know, broader extended family, very involved very early on in the environmental movement. I mean, my wife today sort of runs all of sustainability for Amazon. So that's sort of, sort of keep, it's very, very close to what, you know, what matters to me as well. So that was, I think the social impact piece of it, that was what I understood. And that was what success was. It was not about money. It was about, you know, how are you helping make other people's lives better? The entrepreneurship thing, I didn't have a label for it, but my first entrepreneurial endeavor. Actually, before I even had that, I remember my aspiration when I was like in middle school in terms of like what I wanted to do professionally, I was always drawn to James Bond villains because they always had these like really like huge ideas for like, like often for like changing the world that obviously all had like a very dark side to them and were not positive like in the end. But I just always loved that, like that massive world changing aspiration that um, a lot of them represented, which I remember sort of in several of those movies, rooting more for the Bond villain than I was for Bond. And my first business I started actually was when I was 16, where it was actually, I was exposed to the idea of wholesale, which to me was like the most exciting thing ever. So I was really into baseball and baseball cards. And I go to the card dealership, the card shows that would be at Union Halls around Detroit. So I was living in the Detroit area. And you'd, you know, buy up, you know, you buy cards and you trade cards and what have you. And then I learned that if you actually paid $10 and had a table and sat on the other side, you could buy things at half the price. To me, it was like this amazing epiphany that you could buy things wholesale. So I you know, took my collection, put it on it, pay my 10 bucks, sat on the table. And then I started being able to buy up other people's collections and cards at half of the retail price and just got really into it. And every weekend would have you know, my table set up, would you know, practice merchandising, practice like all these different ways of like, how do you sell how do you sell your cards um, in a competitive environment? And also just loved interacting with customers, especially they were not people who I would have interacted with in my normal world. It was a lot of like folks from uh, auto industry and sort of much more blue collar than my family and environment. So just love that. So that was my first like exposure, I think. That's where you're discovering that you have the genes or whatever it is for business and for, and for commerce. Yeah. And I didn't know, I mean, I didn't have a label for it. I just knew that I, I love that. And I just found like through high school, like I just was always the one starting new clubs. I was always the one creating new things. That's sort of how I operate. Like I, I create more than I do. One of my favorite examples of that was living in the Bay area. I really wanted to play more tennis and I thought I could use Craigslist, which was bigger at the time to help find folks and just put out like, Hey, does anybody want to play tennis in Dolores park? And I think I got like 60 responses. And this is amazing. Like, I can't play with all of you, but let me match you all together. And pretty quickly, I had created the Dolores Tennis, Dolores Park Tennis League. At any given time at Dolores Park, like half the people playing were from this network I'd created of people playing tennis. And I never once played tennis. And that is part of that. 
So this is an example. This is a, a story about what well, it's not a business, but but yeah. an opportunity finding you rather than you seeking the opportunity. Yeah, which I think almost always happens. It's like you run into something and you see, you sort of have that aha moment of potential. Yeah. So so at what point are you beginning to grapple with turning opportunities like these and and then the foundation into an organizational success? And you're grappling with who are the people that I need to bring on the team and developing that management and leadership and, and team leadership mindset. What Describe to me a little bit of that journey and, and some yeah. of the key insights there. It's not, I think in most cases, I don't set off to do anything. I get inspired by an idea and I want to sort of see if I can invent something to solve for it. And some of those inventions you realize have a much bigger opportunity and that to actually realize the potential of that invention, like you need an organization behind it and you need to build something. And in some cases you say that's a nonprofit from a tax status perspective and how you design it. And, you know, in the case of what I'm doing now, I'm like the only way you can build B2B software and scale it is being venture backed. That's how that works. So you choose that as the model. I did not set out saying, I want to create a venture backed tech company. Like that was never on my aspirational list of anything. It just, it is the path for this invention and this aspiration. So that's sort of where that that came from. So with each of them, it sort of, it flowed from the invention. So with Taproot, you know, I started off, I said, I have this idea. Again, Craigslist, because that was the way you communicated back then. I posted saying, hey, I've got this idea. Does like anyone want to like work on this with me? And just got like tons of people saying, hey, like I'm happy to work full-time for free. I'm happy to help with this. I'm happy to get my company's resources behind this and started to sort of see this momentum behind it. And then you start to say, okay, like, this is something that needs that next level of infrastructure. And then you sort of see the broader opportunity of the vision and you start to think about what is the container that can make that happen. And I think that's where I'm very different than I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the business world where I see a lot of it's, you know, where are their business opportunities to make money is the sort of starting place for a lot of the people I talk to. Whereas to me, it's the invention. And then what is the right home for that invention? Is the implicit message there that, that you are to be there at the beginning of the creation phase, but you're likely to move on when it needs a, a professional management to institutionalize the place or, or no, you could get interested in, in that next phase as well. But yes, it's a both. So I think at that next phase, once you've got proof of concept, go to market, figure it out. I think my role moves less into management more on leadership is how I think about it. And you need to bring in that management layer. That's like making sure you're scaling and you're, delivering things on time and predictability, like you need to bring in that layer. But I still think that as a CEO, I can bring a lot of value as a leader who is evangelizing to the employees and to the outside world, who is keeping people inspired. So I feel like that role continues, the role shifts from inventor into more of evangelist. And I think the tricky part is letting go of a lot of that invention and letting other people take control of that and focusing more on the evangelism and then trying to figure out for me personally, like how do I still get that invention need met for myself? Because if I don't have that for too long, evangelism is not enough for me. Mm -hmm. If you're extraordinarily successful, where will you be five years from now with Imperative? Uh, so our goal is to be five years from now doing a million conversations a day on the platform. So just sort of thinking about if I'm, you know, a million hours of peer coaching happening every day, you know, companies around the world. At that point, I feel like we're going to actually see a, a shift in the culture and the expectations of the workplace. So I think about success in that way. It's like a critical mass of you know volume of people doing this every single day. 
that's, that's the primary measure. I think from a business perspective, you know, five years from now, you know, I would you know, want to be close to 100 million in revenue or well on the, our way to that. And to have, you know, had pretty deep penetration in a number of like, major verticals where this just becomes sort of de facto how, you know, work is done in those industries. And that if you took a job somewhere that didn't have it in that industry, you'd be like, this is crazy. Like you don't have healthcare sort of benefits would be like the equivalent of like not having peer coaching as part of, you know, your, your idea of like what, what work should be and what the benefits are as a company. So do you have a, like a, a big theory of the case in terms of the evolution of the experience at work and where we are and why this is meaningful now and, and where and how the world of work is changing in the coming decade? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think a lot of it's, the seeds for it are all already here. And I think a lot of it's come out of crises, which has become more clear to me, you know, coming out of the pandemic. But I saw like in starting Taproot around 9-11, people's quest for meaning. They were saying like, ah, like they saw these first responders. They see, saw people doing, you know, this great work. They're like, what, does my work matter? Um, what am I doing for meaning? So there's this huge push there. We saw with the financial meltdown in 08, people stopped having the same trust in work in their employer. They used to have, and there was a huge push around autonomy. And people being more autonomous in their choices. You saw the rise of things like Uber and Airbnb, all these sort of autonomy-driven career paths. And then what we've seen with the pandemic is this huge push for need for human connection and mental health as being two fundamental shifts that have happened. So as I look at the future of work, I think it's a combination largely of those things, optimized for meaning, optimized for autonomy, optimized for connection, and optimized for you know, mental health. So if you look at like, what does that mean sort of as a go forward? And I think it's a lot about how do you empower people to self-manage with the support of peers versus the traditional model, which has been very hierarchical and about your manager being the one who's managing you and responsible for your success. And I think especially as organizations are more and more agile and much more network-based, we're going to see much more of the tools go into the hands of the employee versus the manager and that the network connections are what's going to support them in their work. We're going to see a lot more focus on the fact that, and actually, I was just listening to a podcast Brene Brown did about burnout, just saying, like, we're first and foremost emotional creatures that think sometimes. And I think work right now and all the systems are designed assuming we're thinking creatures who unfortunately have these annoying emotion things on the side. And I think what we're going to see as we understand more and more about the psychology and motivation in the workplace is that we're going to see a shift in the workplace where emotion is going to become a much bigger part of how we design the work experience and not just assume people are, you know, thinking robots who just solve problems. And that's going to have a ripple effect in the, uh, the systems needed. How will we reconcile those two gaps? First, that there are many jobs that are probably not going to be fulfilling and, and are not going to be purpose-tethered for people. And second, People that want to do all sorts of things because of the sense of purpose and meaning and fulfillment that perhaps cannot be expressed in a work-related or in a, a business or, or money-making context. How would we solve these two gaps? I mean, first of all, I'd say we found people who found meaning and purpose in every job we've ever studied. So it's possible in every job. I think that's one of the things you have to sort of to clearly define is that it is possible. It largely has to do with two variables. One is this sort of mindset. And the second one is generally is tied to a level of autonomy. 
When people have very low autonomy jobs is really where you see the lowest levels of fulfillment because you just don't, you don't have room to move. It's fundamentally different. Just to clarify that, do you view autonomy and connection as, as polarity or do you view those as, as two vectors that sometimes create a higher degree of overlap but sometimes are on the completely two ends? What was it, sir? Autonomy and what was the other one you were saying? Connection. Connection. Because you identify those as yeah. two important vectors. I think it's generally, it's like they have to come together as a model. Um, I think it's complicated, I guess, is the answer. So you think about autonomy, some jobs like who you can have relationships with is just like extremely dictated. And even the conversation, like if you and I were working in a call center and you're sitting next to me, like I'm not supposed to talk to you most likely. Um, when I get on a phone call with a customer, like I've got a script that I'm probably supposed to follow. I'm not having an actual connection with a human being. So I think about that as like a low, like it's a highly social, but incredibly non-connected and low autonomy role, which is why there's such burnout and dislike for those you know, kind of jobs. So that's, you know, like I would look at it in that sense that if you don't have autonomy in a certain way, you can't make connections, period. I think there are other jobs where there's low autonomy, but there's still the ability to have um, that level of connection where you see, you know, you see people in an environment where they're working side by side and there's interaction that's constantly happening. And it's, there's low autonomy on certain aspects of the job, but not necessarily in the social interaction that's part of it. So I think you just need to think about it differently, I guess, just depending on the circumstance, like how the autonomy and connection fits in. And the premise and the, the belief is gradually, increasingly, we'll have people moving into management and leadership that are, are increasingly embracing the mindset that you are describing. But at the moment, you do need to sell the solution and its, and its value and its impact yeah. to senior leaders. Although it's, I mean, I think since I wrote The Purpose Economy and really sort of beating the drum around purpose, seeing like a fundamental shift, I think, in executives and their understanding of the importance. And Microsoft, you know, locally here in Seattle has been a great example of that. I think the pandemic accelerated that where like most executives are understanding the need for connection and the psychological part of work much better. And then, you know, from a generational standpoint, you know, millennials get this way more than older generations. And, you know, as the subsequent generations sort of emerge, that need is even more and more acute. So I think it's just going to get easier with every year as you see those, you know, those changes happening. But I would say also, I, there is fundamentally something going on in the workplace, which is very, very negative, which is very obvious. It's just there is more and more of these like separation between people who have low autonomy jobs and high autonomy jobs, people who have high paying jobs and low paying jobs. These things are all very, they're very connected. I think the future of work for the low autonomy, low paid jobs right now, like does look pretty bleak. I think some of that, you know, there's hope in certain paths. I do less work in that sort of that domain to be able to speak too heavily to what, you know, I think the future of work is for those folks. I think a lot of those jobs will be automated. It'll become a question then of like, what do they, what do they do? I think the other major piece will be, which I talk about when I have to do keynotes is the things that are going to be automated are things where it's like a repeated process that produces predictable outcomes, right? And that's generally what you can automate because you can create rules around how that behavior works. That's also the definition of a professional. So if you think about what makes someone a doctor compared to someone else is that they can do the same procedure multiple times and get the same output. If you think about what a lawyer is, that's the same thing. All these roles that have been the most you know, highly sought after paid jobs are actually in a lot of cases, exactly the definition of what can be automated through AI. So a big part of what I also have been pushing about the future of work is that 
we start tying our identity more to our purpose and less to a profession because professions, I think, are going to be a dying, a dying framework because it's by definition what's going to be done more and more through technology. That's a, a fascinating reframe. And, and you find with leaders that people are prepared to embrace that uh, mindset shift that you're proposing. I think they're starting to. I think it's, there's a recognition that that change is happening, the AI side of it, and the, the move away from that. And there's a recognition that people need to have a growth mindset, which is basically this idea that I'm not a doctor. I am a person who likes to make this kind of impact and to solve problems this way so that you know, if that job goes away, I can go and do something else. So I think there's a recognition of that pretty significantly. Um, I don't think most doctors or lawyers or what have you like have faced yet the reality of like what's what's afoot. You're predicting or foreseeing a future where all proceduralists yep. are are out of job. You are there to create different kind of, of value, different kind of meaning. And yep. we are either one way or another engaged in a creative or inventive or, or transformative role. Oh, we're out of work. Yeah, it's like creative piece. I say, uh, if you want to do well, be as unprofessional as possible. That's sort of a cheeky way of sort of uh, <laughs> expressing that. But no, I think that is key. It's going to be that, that human quality. And therefore, we have to define people's identities more and more about the humanity instead of these artificial sort of professional labels that are by definition fixed mindset. The, the one last distinction I'll make there when you talked yeah. about growth mindset is it sounds to me that you're even more describing learning mindset. In my work, I make the distinction, the, the two. When we truly show up in an environment where we are all prepared to coach each other, which is the, the one you, you promote with peer coaching, we are low on ego. We are low on the need to prove that we already know. We are more on showing up every day to discover what it is we can learn today and how we can make each other better. And that is a different way of, of being wired and engaging it works. So very exciting. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's a very, I don't, I personally don't love growth mindset as a frame. I think it, it is, it can be, there's a lot of people who you would not find to be very, uh, people you admire who would have a growth mindset. I think it, it does tend to tie towards ego and utility. That's why I tend to talk about a purpose mindset, which sort of takes the idea of growth mindset and you add to it a point of view and values. So it's grow towards what? General growth is not a good thing. It's growth towards something and having like a purpose behind it. And that it's not just about you. It's about being in service of others and adding value. So it's not just about achievement, which I think is a lot of the growth mindset is tends towards an achievement mindset um, behind it. So I find reframing it as purpose mindset is really helpful for people. I imagine the other hurdle to overcome with the purpose reframe is that people have internalized over the last couple of decades purpose at different layers. So some companies, some of the large companies that I've helped initially talked about purpose more as a social responsibility after thought addition. First, we make money and then we'll do something good for society at large. But you're describing something very different. You're describing an organization of people where each person in some way is able to produce that internal alignment from their life, who they are, what they believe in, to what they do at work to the larger impact that they create, that's a completely deeper, more profound level of alignment. Yeah, I make the comparison just in, you know, in doing talks about the purpose economies, like with the information economy, and I was there early days in Silicon Valley, you had a lot of companies that said, got it, I'll build a website, right? That was sort of their response to it. 
And others ones said, oh, crap, like this changes every single aspect of my business. And they just went through that digital transformation process. And if you look at the companies that you know thrived coming out of that era, it was not the ones that just thought it meant building a website was enough to say that you are now you know digital. I think the same thing is true with this new era that I'm calling sort of purpose economy. You can just give your employees volunteerism and philanthropy. That's the equivalent of giving them the website. Or you can realize that like every single aspect of your business needs to change as much in this era as it did in the information economy around digital transformation and realize it's that scale of transformation that we're talking about. Fascinating. Uh, three closing questions. Yeah. With all that you know today, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I have a, uh, a new mantra myself, which is to try to avoid giving advice. Um, I find it's not very helpful. But I think if I had to give advice to myself at 25, I think I would just, I think it's the obvious one, but just relationships are the most important part of life and work. Let's just stay with your mantra. So what is replacing advice? It's, I mean, it's coaching. It's helping people solve their own problems for themselves. A a true, genuine interest and curiosity about how the other person is, is growing, learning, evolving, and developing. Yeah, the research shows people who give advice get a lot more out of it than the people who get the advice. And that it's just, there's a lot of dysfunction around advice giving in our society. Fascinating. If you were to lose all that you know and only keep two ideas or two practices or two capabilities, what would be the two that you would keep? Breathing and eating, probably. But uh... <laughs> that's automated into the, the, the system that you are. But in terms of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know quite how to answer the question. I think the things that I think are most important are like just continue like constant curiosity is a practice of just always asking the question like what if, what if, what if? Like I'm annoyingly like asking that question and everything I read, every you know, interaction, I'm like, what if you did this? What if you did that? Like it's just this sort of curiosity of invention. And then I think the second one would be just listening. Mm. I think it's the hardest, it's a really hard skill. And it's one I'm not naturally good at. So it's something that, you know, it's something I aspire to be to be great at in some degree. Like I built peer coaching for myself as a system that forces listening. Beautiful. A rich and fascinating exploration. Uh, given that you said you're not in the business of advice, still, as we bring this Aaron to landing, what parting wisdom would you offer to people listening to create new futures? I mean, I think building off of that and it's sort of a circular self-contradicting, but I think just as leaders, your role is to not give advice and it's to help other people on their journey and to be their, their champions. So the irony of it is like my advice is to not give advice and to instead <laughs> have the curiosity and the interest in helping people you know, find their own answers. It's better for you. It's better for them. And it's better for society. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. Aviv always encourages his clients to identify the one or two ideas they can move forward into action immediately. What will you capture and apply today? You can always begin with a small action and then build momentum over time. When you move forward from an idea to action, you get immediate ROI, return on the time you invested, and return of learning. And then the learning cycle builds the success propulsion. One more thing. You can reach Aviv directly by phone and email to discover how he can help you create a new future for your business and organization. 
creating your new future can begin today.